Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, April 12th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. So, Noah, you have told me something that I did not know. For 40, more than 40 years, I have been a, a, a serious ideological opponent of the uh, of the ethanol subsidies and the ethanol games played by the federal government, uh, ethanol being this um, uh, corn-based gas additive, uh, additive to gas um, that was disproportionately something of benefit to the Archer Daniels Midland Corporation, and it was the it was the brilliant lobbying efforts of Dwayne Andreas, the head of the of Archer Daniels Midland, that kept ethanol in the center of uh, even in the Reagan administration. This kind of a completely uh, deranged uh, uh, government prop up for 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 uh, agribusiness. Uh, here we are, forty years later, and you tell me as we hear about the. Biden administration's or White House's decision to lower uh, the uh, amount of ethanol necessary. I'm not quite. I'm, 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 All right, so, it's, yeah. They're going to do whatever they're going to do to lower gas prices using ethanol, and that this is going to be ruinous for you and a lot of other people in ways that I did not know. Can you please explain? Sure. So yeah, the Biden administration announces today yet another stunt <clears throat> to try to stop what's inevitably coming their way in November to um, allow producers and, and uh, gas uh, gasoline manufacturers to um, sell ethanol gas, 15% ethanol gas in the summer months. Usually you're only allowed to sell it in the winter months. And they do that because in the winter months it's colder and uh, the particulate freezes and sinks. So ethanol has the chance of you uh, creating smog. And if you live in an urban environment, that's a menace um, but it's not, you know, the end of the world. It's it's it might hurt you if you have a you know, particular sensitivity to air quality. But otherwise, it's it's not a big deal. It's a lot different if you live in the countryside. You have more than an acre of land that you have to maintain. I do. And I have to buy a tractor today um, because I have to mow my lawn. On top of that, I have gas powered weed whackers, gas powered chainsaws, gas powered wi- uh, blowers, you know, all that stuff. And ethanol kills small engines. Ethanol is really bad for small engines. It can cause filter plugging. It could seize the engine up. It could create a no-start condition. So you think your, your engine is dead. And maybe it is dead. You got to go replace the thing. Buy a whole new piece of equipment. These are not small expenses. And this is the sort of thing that you would do if you had absolutely no interest in or knowledge of what it's like to live on more than an acre of land. If you only live in the city, then you're like, well, smog's not great, but it's not going to ruin my life. If you live in a, in a, in a suburb or... God forbid, someplace that's rural where you need to use actual uh, farm equipment. This can be a really big deal. So on top of the fact that we already use 40% of the corn we grow in this country for ethanol, which is itself a, a Ponzi scheme, um, now we're also going to be using it to kill the equipment that you spend a lot of money on and need in order to maintain your property. So a terrible stunt that won't have any of its desired effects and could seriously backlash. What, what do you mean no desired effect? It's according to every story I'm reading, this could lower gas prices by 10 cents a gallon. 10 cents a gallon. I filled up my tank three times this weekend um, at various price points in various uh, New England states. And, you know, the cheapest price point was like 
$4.09, right? So great. This will lower the price to $3.99. Boy. Now, granted, right? If you fill 15 gallons, right? And 10 cents, that's a whole dollar fifty you're going to save. Wow. Which you can put towards the new lawnmower you'll have to buy when the engine is ruined by the ethanol <laughs> right. gas. Like it just does. Yeah. Make it make sense, please. Well, Biden's <laughs> going electric. to. <laughs> he, he's going to Iowa today. Um, you know, Iowa's a it's state not that impossible loves that he would face about... a question on this yeah. in Iowa. Well, but in Iowa, they they grow corn. He did it so he can go to Iowa and take a victory lap because it's an agricultural state and agricultural states are why the ethanol subsidy and the ethanol standards and all that still exist. But um, yeah, but meanwhile, Abby is... Franknauer can't even get on the ballot because there's not enough legitimate signatures for Democrats in Iowa anymore. I know that's an amazing story. We should, <laughs> we should explain that Abby Funkenauer, who is a, uh, who is the uh, one of the sort of miracle 2018 uh, Congress members who won a seat in, uh, in Iowa uh, when those 40 seats flipped to democratic control and is an attractive candidate is running, was going to run for Senate against Joni Ernst. Nobody really thinks that, I mean, that's a hail Mary play for her to run for Senate. Um, the, uh, you know, Iowa has become a much more reliably Republican state over the last, uh, you know, X, X years. Um, but, uh, her bid was invalidated because Republicans as, as conventionally everybody does like sued claiming that her, uh, you know, whatever you need, 50,000 signatures, I got all, I don't know how many they are in Iowa, um, that she didn't get a sufficient number of signatures or that a lot of the signatures that she got were, you know, were invalid. Because, you know, when you send out these people to get the ballot signatures to get you on the ballot, it's often happens, you know, people, you know, the people who are hired and they miss their quota like they write in, you know, they write in fake names <laughs> uh, because they're being paid by the name. Anyway, she's not going to be on the ballot. So there's not going to be a, a credible Democratic candidate for senator in in Iowa uh, in November 2022. It is a mark of the bizarre desperation of the Biden administration that he is doing what he is doing in Iowa, a state that you that you may remember has has been the graveyard of his hopes for for decades. It was at a debate in Iowa in 1988 that he or it was in Iowa somewhere at the state fair or something where he plagiarized Neil Kinnock and said, you know, he, he gave a speech about how his family had been playing football for a thousand years. And, uh, and this came out and then he had to leave, leave the race in 1988. And if you remember in 2020, uh, he came in either fourth or fifth in the Iowa caucuses. And that was the moment at which there was this real sense that maybe the race was running away from him. Uh, that's a real, you know, that's a real nightmare uh, for him. And so that's where he's going to take the victory lap on lowering ethanol prices to the state that, that, that has rejected him time and time and time again. Well, at least he'll be out of town when the consumer price index numbers uh, land in about 15 minutes. <laughs> those uh, those right, are not going to yeah, be so good as, for him. As we are, right, as we are, as we are recording this, it is right now 8.14 a.m., uh, the consumer price, the inflation numbers for March come out in 15 minutes. We'll talk about it in 15 minutes. Um, but they were bracing yesterday uh, at the White House for shock because, you know, of the Putin tax. The Putin price hike. The Putin price hike. The Putin price the hike, right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
Um, now, remember, inflation, I believe the last number was 7.9%. Is that right? It was either 6.9 or 7.9%. And this is going to be worse. This is going worse. We've already seen small be business worse. sales expectations <clears throat> falling negative uh, uh, 18 in March, which is the lowest levels they've been since the pandemic began. This is re- These are recessionary signals. We're getting a lot of them. Um, and it's in part because the cure for the ills of high prices are high prices. Um, right. So it is April 12th. The election, let's count. April to May, May to June, June to July, July to August, August to November, seven months, uh, six months and three weeks until uh, election 2022. And as we keep saying, you look at the issue set that people say they care about, right? It's uh, the economy, inflation, crime, and immigration, all of which he is spectacularly underwater with, or in, or whatever you want to call it, Biden and the Democrats. And uh, the news, the, the, the worm has turned, or the effort to put a smiley face on everything uh, has vanished in the mainstream media. There is just a cascade of articles over the last four or five days about Democrats panicking about November. Now, it's interesting because careful conventional wisdom peddlers like Charlie Cook, uh, who who no longer uh, owns or runs the Cook Political Report, but it's still named for him, uh, political prognosticator, said that he is now confident in saying that the over-under on Republican pickups in the House is 20 seats. That's the over under 20 seats. I mean, um, take the, the over. The, everybody take the over. That is the easiest over in history. You know, that's that's like saying that, you know, um, that the 1980 Lakers playing a high school basketball team, you know, that the over under there was nine points. I mean, this is not a rational calculation it's just a kind of effort to create a soft landing because uh the horror is baked in the cake so the question is just how serious a threat everything is and you can see this i mean it's like flailing hysterical desperation abe right i mean we have we have ethanol we have uh, you know, I, I, there's like six or seven other things where it's like, no, no, yeah, tell your good economic story. Well, what good economic story? It's 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 hysterical flailing because the administration hasn't moved to do anything substantive to to change what's happening. <clears throat> so it's it's <clears throat> excuse me, it's all aimed at uh, perception, not policies aimed at the actual problem. And it's just transparent. I mean, th- this, this, is, this is why the, the Biden's own numbers are, are where they are. I, no one buys any of it. I mean, we've said this before. Their stunts fall flat. They die on the spot. I don't when they do, can, it is policy, I, though, to the extent that they're saying, you know, this use it or lose it nonsense where you're sitting on these leases and you don't you haven't developed the land like that's pat that's policy. But it's also you know populist demagoguery, similarly, you know, sicking the FTC and the Agriculture Department on uh, meat packers and gasoline producers. Those are policies, but they're also 
um, you know, really irresponsible. Well, I was going to say when he does propose policies, that's exactly right. I mean, also economic ones. I mean, this idea that the student loan, you know, we talked about student loans last week, but but moratoriums on things like student loans and whatnot, that's that's a policy, you know, and, and that is appealing to a certain demographic of, of uh, Democratic voters, but it actually is harmful to economic health. A lot of what they're doing on the margins still with COVID is harmful to economic health. Um, and I know we're going to talk about mass mandates coming back because that's uh, certainly here on the East Coast. That's a worry for a lot of us um, with the with the new variant of Omicron. But those things will also be bad for the economic health of, of a lot of places. It's just incoherent. They have spent the campaign and the first half of this presidency touting themselves as environmentalists, as, as doing their best to curtail and truncate energy production and then pivot 180 degrees in November last year to demonizing fossil fuel producers for not producing enough. And then they expect everybody to just accept this pivot as though it's a natural evolution of this presidency and not a response to a, a, a flailing, as you say, response to a series of crises. No, but I, I want to defend Abe here because I think what what he means by policy is, OK, there is a massive crisis. There's going to be disruptions in in, um, you know, in in worldwide oil production. Oddly enough, by the way, uh, disruptions and problems that um, benefit Russia. Right, which is going to actually make more money on its gas exports as prices go up because of the worldwide atmosphere than it would have made otherwise. So, um, so that that part of the let's punish Russia isn't working. So, what would work? What would work would be a policy pivot where it's a, it is too dangerous for the world for us to be in a position where uh, major gas producers uh, you know, outside the United States can uh, hold us hostage, screw up our economies, create inflation and all of that. So we are, just take an example, going to allow the construction of the Keystone Pipeline. We're going to allow drilling on, on federal lands, all of that. Now, I understand that that's science fictional because the Democratic Party is an environmentalist party. But that would be the policy. That would be like looking the abyss in the face and the and the economic crisis in the face and saying we have to change gears and that would force people to take seriously a Biden administration that has gripped the sense of crisis and has responded to it with a real change in direction and the the only thing i could sort of liken it to was what did George W. Bush run on in 1999 and 2000? Modesty in foreign policy. Like, it's enough. We can't be the world's policemen. You know, I, I don't know. I'm a little uncomfortable with what happened where we allowed ourselves to be part of a UN air force in Serbia. Da, 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 da. We got to be modest. We got to be modest. We got to be modest. I want to focus on education and I want to be the, you know, I'm worried about the single mother who works in a diner and all of that. And then 9-11 happened and he was like, okay, the world has changed. And as, as, as we put in our, as we called Eli Lake's piece, the world has changed and we must change with it. And he will not make those changes. What he will do is gimmicks. You release some gas from the, from the strategic oil reserve, you lower gas prices, 10 cents by, by changing ethanol rules. And you walk and, and you, and you sue meat packers because supposedly they're, uh, oh, I want to make one other point about about what's going on and why the the horror. So, you know, we are watching as a city of 25 million people is under complete lockdown where people aren't allowed to go out of their apartments. You know, what people do in Shanghai, they run the supply chain. 
Shanghai is supply chain city. That is where that is where things fly out of and fly into to get or you know where where things are staged on ships in order to get out and get into the you know get into the worldwide economy there is going to be there are going to be downwind effects of the of the lockdown of shanghai on the supply chain and prices and worldwide supplies of things for the next 3 months no one is even talking about that because everybody is jaw dropped by the fact that people aren't allowed to leave their homes to get food in shanghai and they're kidnapping dogs and killing them so they have something to eat. So anyway, Abe, I'm defending you is what I'm saying. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs> Can I add to that, which is this is this is why and we've said this many times, but I think it's that the chickens are really coming home to roost here. This is why the Biden administration would have benefited from a more adversarial media. Because a lot of this stuff would have been challenged at the get-go. The gimmicks wouldn't have been, you know, basically promoted by an enthusiastic uh, Beltway media, but but critically assessed, and they could have seen some of the errors and some of the logical conclusions. And one of the one of the little videos making the rounds uh, last night and this morning was a is a parody uh, that appeared on Saudi Arabian television completely mocking the Biden administration. And it shows Biden at a kind of press conference, doddering, confused, being literally propped up by Kamala Harris at some point, whom he refers to, you know, as, his, as the first lady, like just a bumbling fool. The kind of thing you used to see on Saturday Night Live whenever there was a Republican president, but you never see now because how dare we ever mock an administration that's so serious and, and, and propping up democracy or whatnot. But that he is missing that that element of critique. He's missing a kind of constant pressure to prove what these gimmicks are doing or to say what he's actually intending to do, you know, six months from now versus six days from now. And that's the, it's too bad that press has not done their job. Maybe, as you say, John, they're just now starting to because they can't avoid this and they certainly won't be able to avoid it in the midterm elections. But that's harmed the Biden administration, not help them. I think that you have this horrible conflict for them, which is they have to pivot away from left-wing nostrums in order to capture the center, which they managed to do in 2018 and which it appears they managed to do in 2020. Uh, that Trump lost, you know, the center which had moved right. Trump alienated enough of the center that Biden could get 81 million votes. The Democrats could win 40 seats, all of that, right? Um, and, uh, and so much so that Trump lost and Republicans gained, gained seats in the house. Right. So, um, in 2020, so they need the center, the center is more powerful than the left, but going into a midterm election, if you don't have your base willing to go out and do what you needed to do and then build from there, you are screwed. And they are screwed because they have been so keenly worried about losing the left uh, that they they haven't the the um, uh, how do you describe it the um, the conflict or the sort of existential difference between what the left wants and what the center wants has never been this vast. Um, I mean, maybe maybe in the 70s it was this vast or, you know, sort of 1980 or something like that. But it's really, really big. You know, it's you know the, left, it, the left hates cops and the public responds by saying we need more funding for cops. There's a crime surge like there is no way to to 
to bridge that divide. Sorry, it kind, of, it kind of puts the lie to, the, or not the lie, but it sort of deflates or, or, or explodes this very popular idea you hear from people when they say, um, I'm socially liberal, but economically conservative. Um, you kind of can't be both, uh, at least not in a crisis, because you, because you, you resources and funds and focuses, you have to divert certain things to get the economy going and you and, and uh, you know, uh, in, indefinite moratoriums on, on rent and things of that nature don't, aren't going to cut it. You know, it's interesting because the only thing that anybody can see on the horizon changing, potentially changing democratic fortunes, which is a, you know, open question whether it would or wouldn't, is a Supreme Court decision in the abortion case that effectively overturns Roe v. Wade. So you then have this bizarre thing where you have uh, Democrats worried about 2022, probably somewhere secretly in their heart of hearts, wanting Roe v. Wade to be overturned so they can create this, you know, tsunami supposedly that will, you know, that will trigger uh, America's uh, socially liberal but economically conservative people to not look over at the at the Republicans who are going to take away abortion rights or have taken away abortion, whatever you want to say, and turn turn toward them. So when you get people rooting against their own policy interests because their political interests need to be served that way, uh, you are in very, very deep, deep trouble. And, you know, I know in some ways this sounds like we're cheering this on. And I, I think from the from the beginning of the administration, from the earliest signs of inflation, nothing would have made me happier than to know that the that Biden and those people woke up in the morning and said, "We can't do this. We can't do this two billion and then this four billion, and then and then a trillion. You know, we can't do this. You know, two trillion dollar relief package and then turn around and try to spend four trillion dollars." What are we create? Like we can't do that. The inflationary effects are just going to be too horrible. Let's like let's let's tack to the center. That imagine a world in which that had happened. Even if you know what you want is Republicans to win office and control things. Like new political realities would have been established. The Democratic Party would have looked its crazy looked crazy in the face and looked this idea that he could be at new FDR, new LBJ or something in the face and said, no, 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 we got to be realistic here. We got to like look at re- reality as it is and play into what would be best for the country in the long term. And what's best for the country in the long term would be best for us in the long term. And we're this is how we're going to play this. Um, but either they were too short-sighted or they're too feckless or they're too stupid to do that. And we're all going to suffer here. I mean, we're all going to, if there's, and there is going to be a, you know, I don't know, 75% of a major recession in the next two years. Yeah. It's going to mean Republicans win in 2024. We're all going to suffer. Housing values are going to crash. You know, our, our, you know, our, our economic holdings are going to crash. And uh, it's going to take a long time for the inflationary spiral to quiet itself, even when a recession hits. So nobody would, should want any of this. And, uh, uh, and so, but I do think that you're in a weird position where Democrats now must be hoping, as I say, that, that, that the Supreme Court overturns. Um, okay, so the inflation numbers are in. Uh, and they're not as bad. Oh, so they played. They they played it well. 
They're not as bad as they could have been, right? A year to year, eight and a half percent expected 8.4%. So it's up half a percent, but like they were making us think it was going to be 10. So uh, it's not that bad. <laughs> uh, months Only to months. Only a 40-year high. It's a 40-year high, but it, but but like... They'll just make a you, chart that doesn't show any more than like this year, like they like to do. They'll make right. that chart that says, see? This yeah. <laughs> no, it's a 40-year high, but really, yesterday, I, I thought, my God, they are really, you know, they are really going to try to cushion because they, ooh, this is going to be like, I mean, it's bad. Eight and a half percent inflation year to year is extremely bad. Um, but, you know, I don't know. Anyway, I don't know what to, what to, we'll, we'll see, we'll see what people, uh, we'll see what people say uh, about it. I mean, I guess that's the thing. And now you have this kind of you know, desperate game where people are going to go, well, you know, it wasn't so bad. Um, it's the frog in the pot, right? And the water gets slowly turned up that metaphor. That's because yeah. we're, you know, we're, we're, we're at a pretty rapid simmer right now. So yeah, because if, yeah, if we go up half a percent inflation month to month, every month, you know, uh, sooner or later, that's real money, right? And you go from 7.9 to 8.4, 8.5. Like, it's real money what's, right what's, now. What's going to yeah. happen in April and what's going to happen in May, you know? You know, that's a um, weird rationalization that <clears throat> that it's in line with expectations. Expectations were really bad. The conventional wisdom is really bad. So it wasn't as bad. It as just didn't expectations. beat expectations. Expectations were for pain. <laughs> right. Like it's not apocalyptic. So it's good. We're good. <laughs> yeah. And um, and, you know, uh, when considering uh, the future and you if you run a small business, uh, and you got to make plans. Uh, HR is one of those horrible conundra that you've got to deal with. And that's why I want to talk to you about Bambi, one of today's two advertisers, because when running a business, those HR issues can kill you. And HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business to give you a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month, month to month, no hidden fees. You can cancel any time. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat, and they customize your policies to fit your business, help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. Let Bambi help. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time in HR compliance. Get your free HR audit today at Bambi.com slash commentary to schedule your free HR audit. That's B-A-M-B-E dot com slash commentary spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. And let's talk about Novo. Small business checking uh, with a real difference because if fortune favors the bold, the strong and the brave, you need business checking as brave as you are, and that introduces Novo business checking. Uh, unlike the traditional banking model, Novo has no minimum balances, no transaction limits, no hidden fees. Instead of a one-size-fits-all approach, Novo is customized to your business to save you time and free up cash flow with seamless integrations to Stripe, Shopify, QuickBooks Online, and more. Sign up for Novo for free and join the community of over 150,000 fearless small businesses that have found the customizable business checking solution that admires their bravery. So sign up for that free business checking account right now at novo.co slash commentary. Commentary Magazine listeners will get access to over $5,000 in perks and discounts. Go to novo.co slash commentary to sign up for free. Novo.co slash commentary. Novo Platform Inc. is a fintech, not a bank. Banking services provided by Middlesex Federal Savings FA, member FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. 
let's talk about Philadelphia and Steve Moore and um, uh, what is the Carrie uh, uh, Mulligan uh, of of the University of Chicago and their findings about states and their and their reactions to COVID. So Philadelphia has announced it's it's re it's re uh, re upping the mask mandate that it lifted uh, next Monday. Um, which is coincidentally my birthday. So it's a real birthday present though for me that I don't live Don't in celebrate in Philly. <laughs> um, so they're also- doing this because case numbers are up in Philadelphia. You want to know how much case numbers are up? They were somewhere in the fifth, they were like 57 and uh, three weeks ago, and now they're 148. So as a result, the city of 2 million people, into which, by the way, people uh, commute, right? From the main line and stuff like that. Uh, they're they're putting on the mask mandate again. And can I add that in a lot of uh, cities, including my own, uh, the universities that had, had complied with the local municipal mask mandate lifting are reinstituting them. So Georgetown University is reinstituting a mask mandate. American University is reinstituting a mask Columbia mandate. Columbia University Hopkins, here in New York yeah, is doing yeah. it. Yeah. So that's that that's the tip of the spear in in cities where there's still no indoor public mandate. These a lot of institutions are still coming back with the masking. Um, it's it's coming. I, I can feel it in the air. Um, there is this there, there is going in New York. Shockingly, people are going to be clamoring for it. I who. OK, so this is the thing. 148 cases. So you're masking up, right? Um, the new case load nationally is up 10 percent over two weeks ago because Omicron, uh, because BA2 is very, uh, very contagious. And you can get it even if you're not vaccinated. Hospitalizations continue to go down. Deaths continue to go down. Cases are up. So as I said yesterday, we have now a complete disjunction between case numbers and consequences. Uh, What the hell? Like, these are the people who are supposed to be able to make these distinctions. Am I wrong? No, Somebody help me out here. But it's but but for too long, there's been a conflation with cases and outcomes. You know, uh, there hasn't been the the we haven't teased one apart from the other and, and focused on the important one, which is outcomes. Um, it's, it's been, it's been, we've been, pan, you know, the, the official line from public health officials has been to panic about cases, case rates. Right. But that's crazy because yeah. it matters if it matters, if there is a, if there is a, um, correlation, which of course there is, I'm not saying there isn't, but if there's a correlation between case rates leading to hospitalizations, leading to deaths, if you have a disjunction between rising case numbers and falling hospitalization numbers and falling death rates, then using case numbers to be as your as your as your uh, watchword is literally nonsensical. I mean, I, I, you know, unless you believe, as I think, as Abe, you say, people are going to say, uh, well, you know, it's a lagging indicator. Deaths are going to go up hospitalizations are going to go up because they're all but it's been two months that we've had omicron or three months that we've had this omicron surge in some sense and 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 hospitalizations have continued to fall not not rise and i i mean i i think we might finally be getting to the point that noah has been predicting for a long time about the more kind of 
mild civil disobedience if they try to bring this stuff back. I, I've, I've talked to a lot of people in DC who've said that people who were super maskers, you know, until it got dropped. I, you know, the fact that the vice president wasn't wearing a mask the other day when in a setting where she was supposed to, and the answer was, well, it was a very emotional and, you know, historic day. She couldn't wear a mask. I'm like, great. When I get on a plane or a bus, that's what I'm going to say. It's a historic emotional day for me. I'm not going to wear a mask today. I'm just too emotional. Or people can start doing things like showing up at a place that requires a mask. And if they require a mask, they have to be provided with one. Like don't carry a mask around anymore. Just, but the, I, I am not sure there was a recent Axios Ipsos poll that showed once again, even Democrats are not seeing COVID as, as, a, as a serious threat, like the serious dangerous threat that, that we all understood it to be two years ago. So if they bring these mask mandates back, I'm not sure people are actually gonna comply. The polling around think- this has always been hinky. <clears throat> There's always been, if you, I consume each and every one of these things and all of them to a certain degree say that masking is, is mitigation measures generally, masking among them are popular with a narrow majority if you know if not a, a plurality of the public and yet a majority also say that they've gone back to their life as normal <laughs> indicating that they're not necessarily being honest but these pollsters we have to go back to february long ago in february when all the democratic governors rushed to the exits and all of them lifted their mask mandate simultaneously that was at a time when we had daily case rates of 220,000 people new cases on a daily basis. It was not tethered to cases. It wasn't tethered to polling. It was tethered to an assumption about their general political prospects in November and lobbying from uh, constituent groups, local constituent groups who said masking and mitigation measures generally were a drag on their ability to make a living, that it was, it was reducing the return on their investments in their business. And they needed to get rid of that tomorrow in order for democratic prospects to improve. And that's what Democrats did. Now, if they return, they will return exclusively to dark blue urban environments, much like the ethanol thing, at the expense of everybody in the suburbs and in rural areas. Because in Philadelphia, it's not just Philadelphians who are going to experience this, as John said. It's commuters from Bucks, Montgomery, Delco, Chester, Northampton, all these places that you remember hearing about in 2016, in 2020, in 2012, because they are core uh, key counties, bellwether counties to watch where the nation goes. And they're the ones who are going to experience this first. And boy, are they going to resent it? OK, but let's in talk term, about that. In, oh, go ahead. In, in terms of public opinion in those deep blue places, um, I think when there is a spike and everyone starts knowing some people or having people in their family who have now have gotten infected, even if the outcomes are are not uh, severe, it's sort of they're, they're, they get re-traumatized all over again. It's like they go right back to, to 2020, you know, and, and suddenly they, they want to be protected again. Okay. So again, I just want to, I just want to throw some, some data at you. Cause you know, me, you know, me, I'm a statistician, as you know, and an epidemiologist um, and all things that you can be, even if you can't do math, but I'm looking here at the cases, hospitalizations and in ICUs. Okay. So the cases are up 10% over 14 uh, days ago. As, as, as Noah said, in February, when all these mask mandates were lifted, there were 200,000 cases a day, 32,000 cases uh, uh, on, a, on April 11th. So we're actually down, you know, I don't know, 80% from the, from the Omicron peak, even though that's up, right? It's up 10% from 14 days ago. Hospitalized, 14-day change. 
17% down. And here's the key number. In ICUs, 26% down. So let's extrapolate from this. Cases are way down, though they're up relative to where they were two weeks ago. But relative to where they were two weeks ago, hospitalization numbers are down 17%. And really sick people in the hospital, meaning people in ICUs with COVID, are down 26%. This is the circumstance in which we are looking at people, we're looking at people reinstituting mask mandates. It is, it is almost as though the people who are tasked with the job of looking at this stuff and, and being a rational about it have abandoned rationality for uh, that, that hysteria is now the new rationality. Like, isn't this why we have experts? We have experts because they are supposed to be able to look beyond fear and figure out what the real order of battle is. And I can do this by looking at this. And the only thing that could merit or possibly justify it is this idea that there's going to be a lag and everybody's going to die, except that we now have months of Omicron data. BA2 is a variant of Omicron that is weaker but more contagious. And so, therefore, extrapolating the idea that if case numbers go up from you know, 27,000 to 32,000 uh, over 14 days, that we are about to have a death surge or a hospitalization surge. That is not what the data suggests. They suggest the opposite. They suggest that this thing is becoming endemic, that people who are vaccinated are getting it and are not getting sick, but for some reason find it necessary to test because they're going somewhere or they're doing something or maybe they have a cold or whatever. So, this is hard um, to, to pinpoint the political effect of it, but, you know, for probably the second half of the pandemic, I'm, a, I'm declaring the pandemic over. So the second half of the pandemic before it ended and was over and is over. Um, most, most people didn't experience mitigation measures. Most people, maybe not most people, but most of the country geographically didn't experience mitigation measures. Um, but they were present. As particularly in urban environments. Maybe they didn't even have much experience with those environments, but they still felt it. They use the term lockdown as sort of a general expression of antipathy towards mitigation measures wherever they exist, in whatever venue they exist, even if they don't experience them personally. And it's not, and so there's a political backlash here that I think is broader, potentially broader than where it's being implemented because the sentiments in, in Philadelphia are probably more for than against something like this, right? But I don't think that sentiment prevails in all of Pennsylvania and all of Pennsylvania and Western New Jersey will experience this because of their proximity to it. It'll, it'll okay. be just part of the, the background radiation of this election, which in the last election was very much a backlash against COVID policies. So even right. if they okay. don't feel it, they'll be aware of it. Two, two things though. One, one is that while people didn't experience mitigation measures, you say in most of the country, everybody did experience mitigation measures in some fashion or other. Like, for example, if you had to go visit somebody in a hospital anywhere in the United States, you had to wear a mask. Probably if you went to your doctor's office, even in Montana, you had to wear a mask. There were places the mask was not invisible and, and, and unnecessary 
in part of the country and necessary in others. There were, it was never, it was never obliterated from the national consciousness anywhere. So, and people, uh, so it's not that, you know, people had to wear them everywhere in stores and in restaurants, but, the, but there was somewhere that meant that they sort of had to have one in their pocket or in their, or in their car or something like that in case they had to go somewhere, visit someone in a hospital, whatever. So that's number one. So in that sense, it never went away. And it was, it's always been a reminder. It's always somewhere in the back of your brain, even if you live in a very rural place, I think. Number two, let's talk about Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has a Senate race. It is a key Senate race, right? I mean, uh, 50-50 Senate, every vote counts. There is a pretty good, interesting Democratic candidate in Pennsylvania, Lieutenant Governor Futterman. He's like a weird, working-class, fun, interesting character, right? And there's this kind of crazy, interesting uh, Republican primary that's now between the former head of the largest hedge fund in the world, uh, who is now walking around trying to look like Len Youngkin, that's Dave McCormick, and then Dr. Oz from TV. Um, and McCormick is sort of like the rational businessman candidate who, you know, is playing Trumpy to some extent. Uh, his wife worked for the Trump administration, Dina Powell. And then there's Dr. Oz, who is Dr. Oz. Let's say that this is going to be a close election. It may not be. It may be the Republicans run away with it because of everything else. But let's say it's going to be a really close election. So Philadelphia is a city of, uh, I don't know, I said it was 2 million, maybe it's less, but whatever. Okay. You think that stuff like this isn't going to make 15,000 people say, oh, the hell with these people. Enough. I'm not saying that's 15,000 out of 2 million. Like, I'm not saying it's hundreds of thousands of people. In a close election, doing something highly controversial and emotional and dramatic, like reimposing mask mandates, I know it's a long time before the election, but it just it keeps it at the forefront of consciousness. And this is like, that's the last straw. This is not only Bucks County and Montgomery County and the, and the ring counties around, around uh, you know, and on the main line where people may be like, oh, the hell with this. Like, I'm not even going to go into the city to go to a concert if I have to wear a mask could be people in Philadelphia, you know, a city that votes 80% Democratic. So let's say it votes 77% Democratic. That's it. That goodbye, goodbye Senate seat. I mean, you know, it doesn't take much in an atmosphere like this to drive people crazy and to drive a small, in other words, like the people who like the mask mandate aren't going to, aren't going to change their vote or do anything like that. But we don't know what other people are going to be like. I, um, the signaling yeah. also is very confusing from the uh, elite in the Democratic Party. So I'm thinking now of, of two things. One is that we why is it still a news story when someone tests positive for COVID? It shouldn't be. We still treat it as a news story. And in the last two weeks, we've had this series of stories about, you know, the Gridiron Club dinner and the upcoming White House Correspondents Association dinner and lots of elite people in D.C. got 
COVID again, including Nancy Pelosi, who just issued a press statement saying, oh, I've now tested negative. I'm coming out of quarantine. Hooray for me. She's pretty high risk given her age, but she was vaxxed and boosted. And, and so it's not news. But the fact that it's still being treated as newsworthy is another part of this problem. And, and it's part of a puzzle piece along with bringing back mitigation measures that are that are citing case rates versus hospitalization and deaths. Some people just aren't over it. Like they really do need a radical reshift in how they're thinking about this. They're still in pandemic mode. And I agree with Noah, we're in endemic mode, but they are not. And a lot of the media still has an incentive to continue in pandemic mode, talking about it, using these stories, using these numbers in this way. And it's until we get past that, I fear this is going to be a constant back and forth until, I mean, I'm fearing the future flu season next fall. Like this is going to be a whole thing, seasonal thing. It's going to drive us all crazy. (laughs) Okay, so here's my, um, I'm enjoying the Gridiron Club dinner story uh, because remember the Amy Coney Barrett super spreader event at the White House? Trump is a super spreader. The Trump rallies that were super spreader events, the uh, Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia's experiment in human sacrifice by lifting certain types of lockdown restrictions. And then, of course, Ron DeSantis. So the gridiron dinner is the ultimate Washington establishment event. There is nothing comparable to it. It's a it's a hotly desired ticket. It's a very weird um kind of uh, uh, anachronistic event. People wear white tie and tails. And they, you know, so like it's the only time in the year anyone rents a, you know, no one owns white tie anymore. So like some of the, you got to go rent it at a store and then they do these stupid skits that are unfunny and everything is just embarrassing. It's like, I've been, I w- went to it once and then it was a sort of cringe inducing, like when you went to see the Capitol steps or something or read an Art Buckwald com- column and we're supposed to find those funny, right? So bad, like bad stuff. And it is. And so they all go because they have to, it's so exciting and they're having it again. And, and I'm not saying that everybody there is responsible for the Atlantic calling Georgia's relaxation of, uh, of mitigation measures, uh, human sacrifice, but it is basically, you know, 90% of the media, it's a really a media event. 90% of the media, of course, voted democratic and all of that. And, and we're supportive of the idea that Trump was actively doing things that were going to kill people dead at his rallies, at his, you know, at, at, at his announcement of Amy Coney Barrett's nomination and all of that. And here, guess what? We have an actual super spreader event. 15 or 20% of the people at the dinner have now tested positive for COVID. It's but I fantastic. also really appreciate, yeah, it's, it's, it's irony, but I also appreciate how the conspiracy of interests has relegated this to a non-story um, because it is a non-story because super spreader events don't matter anymore, especially oh, in places with high vaccination rates. It's a non-story outside of conservative media venues. No, no, that's not true. That is not true. Read Punchbowl and actually like people are mentioning this because it's a Washington gossip story. And one of the reasons that it would actually it would be an interesting story, because I think this is what Christine got to is guess what? Everybody got COVID and you know what? They're fine. Well, the other thing got about COVID the story. and they're fine. You know why? Because they're all vaxxed and boosted or they're vaxxed. They're fine. You don't get sick from BA2 if you're vaxxed period 
You don't get, I mean, you get, maybe get a little sick, your throat sore, whatever. That would be a good message. If Nancy Pelosi said, you know what I've learned from this? We're out of the pandemic. That would be a good thing, not a bad thing. She can't say it because they're all crazy. Well, there's also this aspect of it where you keep reading uh, the virus is getting closer and closer to Biden. <laughs> well, they are. Really, I mean, they, there's still that concern, right? He was masked up walking across the White House lawn the other day and people are like, why is he wearing a mask? And, the, and there's they, they put pictures up. It, it's 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 a sort of game of telephone, but with covid uh, exposure. Right. They're like, well, this person hugged Kamala, who hugged this person who was standing within two feet of Biden. Oh, don't you remember uh, the map of the of the that I, there was that the Amy Coney Barrett yes, super spreader event? Yes. They actually. Washington was published a, a graphic of who got it and who was sitting next to who. Yes. And that was, that an was in October of 2020 before vaccines were distributed. But yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but the number of bad outcomes from the, those infections were the exact same amount of bad outcomes we're going to see from the gridiron dinner. Zero. Oh, no, much less, I think. No, I mean, zero. really, as in really bad, as in bad hospitalizations outcomes? or deaths. Oh, yeah. Yes, precisely. Well, no, I mean, Trump was hospitalized. Oh, right. True. We he might, he might have got it. Was that from he that? Yeah, that was from that event. You're right. I, do we know? I don't, we don't know. Who knows how anyone gets, who, who knows how anyone got anything? That's part of the point here. But that, how but did that anyone was, in Shanghai get it? But that you know? was the moralizing I mean, tone though, right? Noah's mm-hmm. right that then pre-vaccination, there was a, a broader acceptance of the idea that if you got it, you somehow did something wrong. And that has completely eliminated from from the elite that have been getting it lately. It's like, oh, how terrible for them. I hope they're okay. Good luck, Nancy. And sending like somebody, she she thanked people for sending her chicken soup. It's if, like, this, oh. if it was a Sturgis-like event, a conservative event dominated by righties, it wouldn't be a Washington gossip story. It would be on my radar. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, well, you know, Here's the thing about COVID. We're not out of the pandemic because we're still talking about it three days a week for 20 minutes at a time. So they keep um, dragging us back in, John. <laughs> yeah, they keep pulling us back in. And 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 we're not we are people like us and the people who believe the sorts of things we believe are not going to be punished for this. That is my ultimate message, which is that every minute that we talk about this this way is a vote against the Democrats in November of 2022. And every reimposition of a mask mandate in a in a swing state with a with a swing state with a uh, you know with a with a Senate race is like that guy Futterman should save his energy because you know absent a real psychotic break on the campaign trail or something like that, he is probably toast because of this. We'll see. I mean, you can write that down. I'll I'll either take a victory lap or be shamed on election day, though I of course won't won't or the day after election day, though of course I won't remember having said this. So you guys are either gonna have to remind me or um, what can I say? Anyway, uh, we will we will call a halt until tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow uh, we will have our May issue up, and we will talk a lot about that then. Um, so for Abe, Christine, and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.